0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature.
2: lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something
0: snappy. Love them or hate them, you can't deny the industry clout of rock giants U2. Now they've ventured onto Broadway. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cot of the Chicago
3: Tribune. We're going to trace U2's career from Dublin art rockers to international superstars. And later on, Jim and I are going to review new albums by veteran songwriter Neil Young and psychedelic rockers Black Mountain. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news.
0: Craig, you've just flown back from our nation's capital where you attended and covered the 10th annual Future of Music Policy Summit. They are really the point organization for interfacing between government and the music world at this time of seismic change. I'm eager to hear what you picked up in D.C. Well, the Policy Summit has
3: been drawing a number of coups over the years and bringing government officials to address the cutting edge of the tech and business and music communities. This year, they had Victoria Espinel, the so-called copyright czar. The czar herself? Yes, the czar herself, appointed by President Barack Obama, her official title, the U.S. Intellectual Property Enforcement Coordinator. The fact that Obama has even appointed such an official indicates that there is a great deal of concern in dc right now about the digitization of intellectual property and how it is affecting not only the music industry but publishing and movies and could affect how they operate and whether they're able to even survive. She outlined their 33-point strategy
0: that they unveiled a few months ago. Hit some of the highlights. i, I got to stop you right here. Yeah. Is there any sense of <laughs> the czar having any sense of the irony or the history in having 33 points to dictate music future? There you was. Know, 33 and a third, right? I have to say,
3: Miss Espinel indicated no sense of irony that whatsoever so. in okay. her presentation. But again, she was saying that the government is going to start pressuring the private sector, specifically internet service providers, to do more to reduce the flow of, quote-unquote, illegal content on the internet. In other words, cracking down on their customers to not share illegal music files if they do they're gonna reduce their ability to get on the internet perhaps cut them off entirely but more importantly she indicated in her presentation the statistics are showing 95 percent of americans are illegally downloading music in other words only five percent of the downloads out there are legal what she's saying is that these people are essentially criminals so I point blank asked her. There was a very short question and answer session after her presentation saying, there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between the policy you've just outlined and the way normal Americans interact with their computers and cell phones. I mean, a lot of people are trading files. Not everybody's asking, "Was well, this a copyrighted file or not? And Espinel sort of waffled a bit. She said, I don't see any inherent conflict in our policy. The majority of consumers don't want to engage in illegal content. I would argue that many of them don't even know if they're engaging in illegal content. Mm. Are we back to suing consumers? Is that what she's advocating? She didn't say that, but I think there was a, a lot of space there left for speculation about what exactly the government is
0: going to do to try to solve this problem. Oh, the other thing I was fascinated with, Greg, you moderated the keynote address by super producer T-Bone Burnett, and he said some stuff that just knocked me out of my chair.
3: If I were starting off right now, I would say don't put your music on the internet. Stay completely away from the internet.
4: Don't be on Facebook, don't be on MySpace. You know why? Because as soon as you're on MySpace,
3: you're one of six million. Yeah, let me just say that that comment by T-Bone brought the whole conference to a standstill. Everybody's jaw was dropping. Wait a minute, here's this cutting edge technology conference and you're saying don't get on the internet at all? And I think his comments were somewhat misconstrued because some people were thinking he's a Luddite, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's completely out of touch... Well, maybe so to an extent, but I think the wider point that T-Bone was trying to make, here's a guy who came up in the era of the 45 RPM single. He's seen all these technological changes. He's seen it go from vinyl to 8-tracks to cassettes to CDs, now to MP3s. One of the things he's said about these continual changes is the continual degradation of the sound quality, that you don't want to be associated with a product that sounds as crappy as an
0: MP3 file. Well, if I was him, I wouldn't want to be associated with that recent Mellencamp album that he (laughs) produced, but that's another issue. (laughs) An album, which I happen to love, by the way. Yeah, I know. But I think what he was trying to say as
3: well is that this is just a grain of sand in the continuum of technological change in the music industry. Don't get so wrapped up in the social media that is surrounding this culture and focus on what you do best. He was imploring artists to make great art. How it's delivered is almost a fait accompli. And I think what he was saying is if we get back to that, a lot of our other problems are going to solve themselves.
0: Greg, I know this was on heavy rotation in your house. That is the uh, cover of Britney Spears' Toxic from the big episode of Glee that paid homage to Ms. Spears last week. It was the talk of the whole TV It one. was, yeah. And everybody in the pop world as well. From time to time, we like to take a look at curious phenomena on the pop charts, and this certainly qualifies. Six debuts on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart from the cast of Glee has now broken the record, most of those, five of them from the, the Britney Spears show, has now broken the record set 52 years ago for the most appearances among non-solo acts in the chart's history since the Beatles. Wow. Is that extraordinary or Glee what? beats the Beatles in terms of chart appearances. Glee and Britney. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tag team. Don't forget that. But I got to say, even more curious is something happening on the charts over in the UK. Red Hot brand new young up and coming talent at number four knocking out of the way brandon flowers of the killers and the manic street preachers knocked him right out of the top five and vying neck and neck with phil collins kt tunsdale a young talent named winston churchill never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few celebrating the 90th anniversary of the Central Band of the Royal Air Force and, of course, the 70th anniversary of the RAF's finest moment, the Battle of Britain, the darkest hour where they repelled the Nazi air invasion. We have Winston Churchill and two of his most famous speeches, the finest hour speech and the never was so much owed by so many to so few speech, set to music from the band, a la like a mashup. Mm-hmm. It's a very new school technological approach to a very old school phenomenon. And you got Sir Winston at number four in the British pop charts. Awesome. Who to <laughs> who'd thunk? You can change your mind, but you cannot change
4: your heart. It's a compass and a map. The key to the chart. I'd be myself if I knew who I'd become. You can fly too high and get too close to the sun. See how the boy falls from.
0: listening to Sound Opinions and that is a song called Boy Falls from the Sky from the new rocktacular musical Greg (laughs) Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark coming to Broadway shortly and the reason we're talking about it on Sound Opinions scored by Bono and The Edge It isn't enough for you 2 to rule the recording universe. They have to uh, now venture onto Broadway with a serious director. Julie Taymor brought The Lion King to Broadway. She's done some great films, Titus and Frida, Across the Universe, that Beatles musical... But uh, despite all that talent with you 2 and Taymor, troubled time getting to Broadway because it is such an ambitious production. The staging, you know, I think Spider-Man's got to have webs and stuff, right? How do you do this? How do you bring it to Broadway? How do you top the Lion King? There was a lot of debate about whether it would even make it there ever, and now it's finally getting there just as U2 resumes its 360-degree tour. Now, the first jaunt across Europe and across the United States in 2009 was the highest-grossing tour of the year and one of the most successful ever. It was expected to make the victory lap, the second round, last summer, but Bono threw his back out carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, you know. <laughs> it's a heavy burden, Jim. I can't get enough of that joke. I'm sorry. Now they're picking up again next summer with some European dates preceding it. U2, as always said, they made no bones about it. We want to be the biggest band in the universe. But that's not where these guys from Dublin started. No,
3: there's no doubt about it. I mean, this was a post-punk band in the late 70s out of Dublin. They were very influenced by the cutting edge in music at that time. And and very much of a piece of bands like Echo and the Bunnymen and Public Image Limited, some of their influences at the time. And taking that music forward, when you think about their contemporaries who have had similar longevity, I'm talking about bands that started, you know, late 70s, early 80s, maybe only R.E.M. and The Cure in that same category of just being able to sustain a career for 30 years playing at a stadium level And without a doubt, U2 has trumped them all. I mean, they're in a class with people like the Rolling Stones and Springsteen, Jimmy Buffett, of all people, who are consistently able to mount these major, major stadium tours around the world and set new records, it seems, every time they go out. For what it's worth, they are the biggest band of their generation. They've released 12 albums. They've won 22 Grammys. They have sold more than 150 million records. And now they're going to Broadway. So we thought this was a great opportunity to revisit our discussion of last year and find out, how did they get to this place? Yeah, because it wasn't always so. W- well, you know, in some ways it could be argued it was, but this was a very different band with
0: at least four different phases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when these young lads came together in 1976, at the instigation, it must be said, of the then 14-year-old drummer Larry Mullen Jr., it was with a different goal. They were inspired by the Sex Pistols and the explosion of energy in London in the summer of hate. There was no saving the world in London during the height of the punk movement. Larry put up a sign on the billboard at Dublin's Mount Temple High School. And among those who answered were Adam Clayton, soon to be the bassist, Mm -hmm. this guitarist who I believe was already losing his hair, Dave Evans, soon to become The Edge, and this outspoken, if diminutive fellow, Paul David Eusen, who decides, no, I am Bono Vox, Latin, (laughs) of course, for good voice. you can argue the pretension was there from the beginning Greg, but when I first heard Boy in 1980 when it was released, and then the records that followed October in 81, War in 83 they really didn't sound like anything else, I think that's the beginning of post-punk it was taking the energy of punk, to a large degree the political consciousness, the influences you know, as I said, U2 was Strongly influenced by the Sex Pistols. You could hear Velvet Underground in there. You could hear a lot of the New York punk influence in there. The rhythms were stripped down. Things were moving. Things were, things were minimal. But at the same time, they added something. It, it was a minimalism, but it was ambient. The production on those early records by Steve Lillywhite, who would go on to do eight records total, he still comes in and out of the career, has throughout their 30 years, yeah. it breathed. It was like they were playing on a mountaintop or maybe in a huge, empty cathedral. Well, I'll give you two bands,
3: Jim, that I think they were coming straight out of and that I think don't often get credit for influencing those early U2 records. First of all, The Edge's guitar sound, Hale is so revolutionary. Go back and listen to Keith Levine, Public Image Limited. Absolutely. And you will see where The Edge got a lot of his guitar sound. And the other band I think is Joy Division. That Mm -hmm. minimalism that you're talking about, you two was
0: listening to a lot of that as well. I remember the first time I saw them at the Palladium in New York City. Bono was already doing that kind of uh, crowd rousing stuff. Uh, you know, at the, mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of the show, he was waving a white flag. Yeah, and you know, impressionable young Jim Deere Goddess. I think it was fourteen or fifteen. I thought that you know, I'm kind of being moved by this, but this is just a little silly. But there were parts of the records that showed more. This is a part of you two we don't see as much anymore. On that very first album, 1980, Boy, on Cat Dub third track in it was really part of two songs it would segue live as it does on the album into into the heart but here's a song that has very little there are a few sparse lines of vocal there's this haunting melody that bono delivers the biggest hook in the song is wordless and there's all this space around it the guitars sound like a vibraphone or maybe it's just the echo it's gaelic on cat dub for the black cat and uh, Gavin Friday one of uh, Bono's closest buddies swears that this is about an affair that Paul David Eusen had when he was on a brief split from his wife he's now been married to uh, to ally for well, decades mm-hmm. right but this was about an affair apparently gone wrong there's a haunting quality to this song that has nothing to do with the stadium shaking bombast we often get this is my favorite u2 this is the u2 that eno and lanois would amplify later mm-hmm. but there it is on the first album here it is on sound opinions on cat dub by U2.
4: See
3: SunCat dub from their 1980 debut *Boy*, and those first three albums *Boy*, *October*, and *War* are kind of a trilogy where the anthems really started to become a big part of their sound. And we're talking about songs like *New Year's Day* and *Sunday Bloody Sunday*. And once you
0: start waving that white flag, it's really hard to put it down. <laughs> <laughs> once you start singing lines, Greg, like "Gold is the reason <laughs> for the wars we wage," where do you go from there? We're going to answer that question after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. And later on, we'll review the new albums from rock giant Neil Young and retro 70s rockers Black Mountain.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott and he's Jim Diarogatis, and we've been talking about the 30 year evolution of rock powerhouse U2. Jim, we started discussing those first three albums, Boy, October, and War, and that's where they established that big anthemic sound. You can sort of see the beginnings of that stadium rock band they are today. But to their credit, they retooled with that next album, 1984, Unforgettable Fire. Here is the entrance of Brian Eno, who had already made a reputation producing the Talking Heads and and working as
0: part of that new wave post-punk scene in New York. You know, Eno told me once, Greg, that uh, in the first hour of sales for The Unforgettable Fire, Mm. U2 sold more records than every record he had sold up to that point in his career. (laughs) No doubt about it. For a lot of people, this was their introduction to U2. I
3: mean, the first three albums certainly had an impact, but with the song pride in the name of love their their tribute to Martin Luther King on this particular album they took on a whole new audience in the United States and the venues jumped from those bigger clubs and theaters into the arenas and the music swelled to fill up those places Bono, I think, had a role in bringing up some of that atmosphere that you were talking about in those early records. He amplified that aspect of it, and I think what makes The Unforgettable Fire such an interesting album is the fact that they were experimenting with some of this more textural and atmospheric stuff, uh, and maybe dialing back on some of the anthems. But what bothers me about it is the Bono world-conquering personality yeah. is here in force and those american influences start creeping into the music in a big way that elvis presley in america song or 4th of july those are the kind of things that you know are bad seeds for future yeah. <laughs> growth in this band
0: gotta say, some people say that the the first three albums, that trilogy we were talking about, uh, has dated badly. Because it does sound very 80s in some ways. But to me, the second trilogy, Unforgettable Fire in 84, Joshua Tree in 87, and Rattle and Hum in 88, they're unlistenable to me. They have dated uh, so much, and it's so much about uh, the flag-waving now brought up to a stadium level and it's just so pompous and ponderous and Bono beating on his breast where the streets have no name and bullet the blue sky and you know save the world. But, I can't take it, nine, man. Ninety
3: percent of you two fans are gonna are gonna argue with you on that yeah, because especially with the Joshua Tree, it's still their most iconic album for a lot of people. And, and let's face it, that opening one, two, three punch is still the core. Of just about every show they play to this day. Where the streets have no name, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, with or without you. You know, if we don't know anything about you two and you just listen to those three songs, you'd have to say, hey, this band has got something. problem was that the tours that started to grow around these albums, and as, and as documented with Rattle and Hum, the band really got full of itself. I mean, some of the stage pattern, I, I, I think the music <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is less embarrassing in some ways than some of the things that are coming out of Bono's mouth. This is a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles, and now we're stealing it back. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff like that.
4: This is a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. <laughs>
3: That's the annoying part of, of U2 in the late 80s. And to their credit, I think they kind of read their own press and they and
0: said, you know, we need to go away for a Well, while. I think there were two things happening. We're talking about the beginning of phase three. It is one of the bravest and most daring reinventions, I think, in rock history mm-hmm. in terms of a band saying we are going to toss out what we have become, as you said. They're filling stadiums and arenas after the uh, Joshua Tree. They have become rattle and hum. They've become self-important. The alternative era is happening. You know, it's no coincidence that Octung Baby, the beginning of Phase 3 of U2's career, comes out in 91, the year punk broke, the year of Nevermind, the year in the U.K. of, of Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. I think they, they felt the tide shifting, and they realized how silly they had become when, when you see the band in Rattle and Hum. And now the Messiah, Bono the Messiah, Save the <laughs> World, becomes MacFisto, an alter ego on stage, which is basically a combination of Carnival Barker, Las Vegas Lounge Lizard, and Satan, because yeah. he's got devil horns, right? And both the music on Octoon Baby and the stage show that would follow, Zoo TV, were is absolutely brilliant.
3: And I think that stage show is inextricable from the album. In order to understand ak Baby, you needed to see the Zoo TV tour that followed it, because it made everything come together. And you're right. That Macphisto character started showing up at the encores, and you're going, what the heck is he doing? <laughs> and, it, and he was poking fun at himself. And it was like, wow, these guys can actually laugh at themselves. And they realize the, kind of the absurdity of it. You know, the fact that the album was made in Berlin, it was kind of their version of Babylon. Okay, here is this ultra-Christian, very earnest band going into the
0: heart of darkness to make this album and completely disrupting what they were all about. Now, now Eno had been working with them since Unforgettable Fire, like we said, and he still works with them to this day. He has songwriting credit on several songs on the new album. But on Achtung Baby, they gave him more of a free hand than I think they ever had. Mm -hmm. He told me that he would come in, he literally had the power to erase anything that they'd recorded in the last couple of weeks, he'd visit every few weeks, that sounded too much like U2. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the corporation around this band, as you said, they're touring now with 500 people, has a vested interest in making sure U2 sounds like U2. They had the courage to invite Eno to erase anything that sounded too much like what they'd done and force them to go in a new direction.
3: I don't think there's any doubt uh, for us, uh, I I, I don't want to speak for you, but Octung Baby is is the masterpiece of their career. But a lot of people give short shrift to the albums they made subsequent to that and I would really like to make a case that this is my favorite phase of U2 ever I think pop is an incredibly <laughs> underrated <laughs> record you're nobody, the only one in the world that thinks that way nobody will agree with me on that you, can raise, but you can't grab it you can hold it control and hold,
4: but you can't
3: Part of it was, I think it was that song "Discothèque," which was the lead single, was kind of a red herring. They had the Village People in the video, and everybody thought, "Oh, this is they're going to be their dance record," mm-hmm. you know, because they had Howie B, this uh, then hot DJ, yeah. producing the record. But what that record really is, is these surreal little atmospheric ballads and these kind of distorted meditations on how this neon, glitzy, technology-ridden life is going to destroy what is left of our humanity. And in yeah. a lot of ways, it is kind of their equivalent of Radiohead's OK Computer, which was obsessing about similar subject matter. I will never forget them closing that big 97 stadium tour, that Pop Mar tour, with the song If You Wear That Velvet Dress from the pop album, which is this really disturbing kind of song. And I thought it was such a beautiful and unexpected moment to get from this huge band. I will always cherish that. I don't think anybody else besides me liked it. But I just thought that this was the U2 that I invested in emotionally. And there was a little detour in the 90s when they made this album with your hero, Jim Eno, called Passengers, which was a very Eno-esque concept. It's a great record. They were creating imaginary soundtracks for unmade movies, and they were basically creating little plot summaries, and you can find them in the liner notes of the album. One in particular, they had imagined this Michelangelo Antonioni Vim Vendors collaboration called Beyond the Clouds, and they created this beautiful song for it called Your Blue Room, and in fact, they played it for the first time in Chicago. It's the first time they've ever played it live. I think it is one of the greatest things U2's ever done. It is the antithesis of what a lot of people think U2 sounds like. It's got this haunting organ part by the edge, and Adam Clayton actually sings the first verse, or yeah, actually yeah. speaks the first verse. So it's a, it's a beautifully haunting, atmospheric song that I think symbolizes this most experimental phase of their career. Here it is, Your Blue Room from U2 on Sound Opinions. It's
4: time to go again To your blue room Got some questions to ask of you clean skin is clean the future just hanging there
0: That's Your Blue Room by U2 in The Passengers, guys, with Brian Eno on Sound Opinions. You're right, Greg. Fascinating stuff. Unfortunately, in the new millennium, U2 turned away from the experimentation, mm-hmm. made two albums that were kind of U2 by numbers, right. going back to a little hodgepodge of everything they'd done before, and then really surprised us with No Line on the Horizon. I, in particular, loved it. Uh, you were enthusiastic about much of it. On tour, they've certainly upped the spectacle, but you ask me, they're trying to be something for everyone, and that's really hard to do. Now, Broadway, we're just going to have to wait and see where they come out there. But whatever you think of the band today, it's worth looking back. If you want to comment on YouTube or anything rock-related, call 888-859-1800, and we'll put it on the air. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook or Twitter. We'll be back with a review of the new album by rock legend Neil Young in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
4: Give me one more chance and you'll be satisfied Give me two more chances you won't be denied When my heart is wet Always been head somewhere In between one
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis, my partner is Greg Cott, and that of course is Neil Young, with a new song called Walk With Me from a new album called Les Noise. There are eight tracks on this album, Greg, clocks in at a little under 40 minutes, and despite Young gearing up to turn 65 years old and having one of the richest and deepest catalogues in rock history, he is still capable of throwing us some surprises. For this one, he said he really wanted to make a solo album that was a solo album. He didn't want to have to teach anybody else the songs. Not Crazy Horse, not any of the other great bands he's worked with. He retires with Daniel Lanois to Lanois' mansion in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, and apparently this mansion is infested with something that Young says is Les Noise, this monster, this ambiance that influenced the sound of this record. A couple of things. Lanois is known as the master of of studio ambience, dark mystery, second only to his mentor, Brian Eno. Lenoir's worked on his own with U2, with Bob Dylan. You know, they get together. Young does all the singing, Plays all the acoustic and electric guitar and those are the only three elements sonically on this new album. We've seen Young take some real far afield detours in this five decade career. Remember the rockabilly one? Remember the electronic synthesizer one? Remember the concept album of Greendale? This is the first time uh, something new really that, that he's that stripped down mostly electric guitar singing a little bit of acoustic guitar. What are the results? We're going to play a song called Hitchhiker that has an interesting history. It's about 20 years old. It's been a young superfan favorite in concert because it's so autobiographical. It's Neil Young singing about when he was 20 years old and indulging in rock star excess. Very, very famously private man doesn't talk a lot about himself. This is musical autobiography. Here it is, Neil Young's Hitchhiker from Lay Noise on Sound Opinions.
5: I knew I was getting hotter I knew I was getting hotter But the neon lights And the endless nights Fame took me by surprise The doctor gave me valium But I still couldn't close my eyes I still couldn't close my eyes
3: That is Hitchhiker on Sound Opinions from the new Neil Young album, La Noise. This started out as a simple acoustic record in Neil Young's mind and in Daniel Lenoir's mind in a lot of ways as well. But once Young got into uh, Lenoir's studio, Jim, I think he discovered what Lenoir could do for one guitar, and mm. it could make it sound like an orchestra. You know, it started out acoustic, then went electric, got this huge sound the only thing that i can think of in terms of a parallel in terms of approach in young's career is when he was working with all that noise during that arc weld period in the early 90s electric yeah. noise those live experiments same thing here the technology combining with the songs and there are songs at the heart of this folk metal he's calling it right exactly folk metal what a what a combination right Lenoir said he was really struck by the riffs that Young was coming up with and he could really hang some of that orchestral splendor around it and again it's basically single take performances run through a bunch of effects boxes creating this sound so that high lonesome voice in the middle of it really powerful really poignant the one thing I don't get is some people are criticizing Young for what they call overly simplistic lyrics on this record and I think they are just missing the point I think he is addressing some really big topics in a very direct and moving and powerful way. Combined with that sound, this is one of the best albums Young has done. In terms of his output over the last
0: decade, I'd rate this right at the top. It is a buy-it album all the way for me. I have to agree, Greg. It's a double buy-it. You know, yeah... Neil has particular themes he always returns to. His love for who he calls his faithful wife, Mm -hmm. Peggy. It's always touching. His hatred for war. Basically, love and war and angry world are both diatribes about the world, you know, succumbing to that kind of anger. Peaceful Valley Boulevard, a beautiful low-key folk moment on this record, which uh, is once again about the cost of American imperialism on native peoples. It's right up there with Cortez the Killer and Pocahontas.
5: A wagon train rolled through the dusty canyon. Settlers full of wonder as they cross A gentle creek where two old oaks were standing Before the west was one there was a cause
0: 34 solo albums and five decades into his career, Young is not afraid to take serious chances and fail. I take away Crazy Horse, I take away any of the other great bands I have. I'm gonna essentially be out there naked, me and my voice and Lenoir's big sound, but it's just me and my voice and the guitar, really. Man, the guy is fearless. He's about to turn 65. I would venture to say that he is almost alone in his generation of the 60s rock legends with the courage to continue trying things that may not succeed, and and when they do, it's just phenomenal. Double buy it for certain.
3: That is Black Mountain with a song from their new album, Wilderness Heart, called Let Spirits Ride. You may have noticed a few uh, 70s references in that song if you're thinking, hmm, that sounds like a lot like Black <laughs> Sabbath, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> that sounds like my dad's record collection.
3: <laughs> well, on their third album, they're basically doing what they did on the previous two albums, which is a heavy retro influence. They make no bones about their admiration for the stoner rock and the classic rock. the late 60s early 70s they have refreshed that sound they're bringing it forward steven mcbean prolific leader of this band also has another project called pink mountaintops which he runs concurrently with this band but he's been working with this group of musicians for quite a while now amber weber on vocals and jeremy schmidt on keyboards and Mellotron are key members of this band they have created quite a bit of notoriety for themselves in the underground, but as I said, that retro sound has brought them increasing mainstream notice as well. We're going to review the third album in a second, but let's play a track from it first, see if you can guess the influences on this one. Buried by the Blues from Black Mountain on Sound Opinions.
4: All forever Into the darkest shades will vanish from the light To the still
0: is buried by the blues by Black Mountain from their third album, Wilderness Heart, here on Sound Opinions. Ooh, 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 you asked, Greg. I, I know, I I hear Zeppelin three plus the Mellotron in the middle. Yeah. You know, I feel guilty giving this a buy-it, and I suspect you may go there, too. I don't want to hedge you off at the past. It's almost like... What a rock critic cliche, Jim and Greg. Mm. You guys like this. Well, how could we not like it? It's got that heavy, stoner, trippy thing. It's got that lighter, twisty, psychedelic thing. It's got McBean's heavy rock vocal. It's got Weber's, like, really sexy, sultry vocal. It's got acoustic guitars. <laughs> it's got feedback. It's got pummeling drums. And it's got, like, trippy stuff. How could we, you know It's like, you look up rock critic, or at least Jim and Greg rock critic in the dictionary, and, like, it says, the kind of people who like Black Mountain. So I almost feel guilty, but it's so well done, it ain't reinventing the wheel, but it really is a nice wheel. I gotta say it's a buy it. Well, to me, there's two kinds of retros. There's the Lenny
3: Kravitz retro, which is basically just plagiarism. Let's repeat a lot of songs that we like from the past and do them again. Yeah. These guys are bringing it forward in a couple of ways. One, the songs are really good. They're good songwriters. And secondly, I think the stepping up of Amber Weber to sort of more of an equal place in the vocal dialogue with Stephen McBean is a big, big Big touch on this album, and I credit not only the band, but I think working with these producers who are more song-oriented guys, particularly D. Sardi, who's worked with people like Oasis and Rolling Stones. Don't hold that against them. Yeah. But just uh, understand that this guy's about bringing those melodies into the forefront. It's really strong. that's Yeah, but what still, works at, the, at, at the end of
0: the day, you're just tripping on it because you love this sounding stuff when you were 13. The sound is great. There's no doubt about it. They have a deep understanding of this.
3: All credit due to Jeremy Schmidt. That Mellotron just kills me <laughs> on this record. I love the way it sounds. There's not enough Mellotron in the world. But for me, the key is those voices. McBean and Weber make this album for me. And they're singing about stuff that I can relate to as well. This whole idea of this music as a refuge from troubled times, away from the static and the noise, away from the bombs and the wars. That's a quote from one of the songs. A little shelter from the storm, I relate to that idea. It's a buy it all the way for me. Sounds good, Greg. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to conduct a classic album dissection. It's Pink Floyd's The Wall on its 30th anniversary.
0: Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Julia Mullen Gordon. If she was a Neil Young song, it would be Cowgirl in the Sand. Our producers are Robin Lynn, unknown legend, and Jason Saldana, Cortez the Killer. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatea, Like a Hurricane. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline,
2: 888-859-1800.
1: New messages.
2: Jim and Greg, uh, this is Todd from Robbins, North Carolina. I was calling to comment on your show about sophomore albums. One that I wanted to throw in as my nomination for a great sophomore album, would be Phil Collins' Hello, I Must Be Going. As much as I enjoy the first album, uh, Face Value, Hello, I Must Be Going, really, to me, of all the solo material that he did, apart from uh, Dancing to the Light, was really his best. The one thing I've noticed here recently, though, uh, with listening to the album again, is really noticing how dark a lot of the lyrical content is in that particular album. I've sort of wondered what uh, Phil's mindset was and writing a lot of the songs that he wrote on that. I'll leave that for other people to really kind of dig into more than myself, but I uh, wanted to uh, throw in my nomination for that particular album as uh, my favorite sophomore album of all time. Thank you. Hi, this is Joe from Boston. I just finished listening to the great sophomore efforts. I think you've got to consider Neil Young, second as a solo artist. Everybody knows this is nowhere right up there. His first solo album, Neil Young was okay. But in the second one, he found his uh, backing band, Crazy Horse, and put together a classic template for all of his great feature work, some great guitar riffs, and songs like Cinnamon Girl and Cowgirl in the Sand, as well as a nice mix of some folk and country, country influences like in the title track. I
5: think I'd like to
4: go back home and take easy. There's a woman that I'd like to get to know,
2: a living the- Definitely think this should be up there in the uh, all time sophomore grades, and uh, hope you agree too. Love the show. Thanks a lot. gotta
5: get away from the state of
1: Hey, this is Ian from San Francisco, and I'm calling about your fairly recent Buried Treasures show. Listen to it via podcast, so sometimes I get a bit behind. Anyway, after hearing a snippet of one of Greg's choices, Sweet Apple, I fumbled for a pen and paper while standing on a ridiculously crowded bus knocking a few people over and scrawled the name down for a future exploration, even though Jay Mascus was the only band member I'd ever heard of in that group. Well, I was in Amoeba, the temple of music of a record store in the Bay Area, and I decided to take a look at the CD. When I saw the cover, I knew I had to try this music out. Greg's review neglected to mention that the cover was an homage to Roxy Music's Country Life album cover, and that's one of my favorite CDs. So I picked it up, I knew I had to get it, and now I'm hooked. Great CD, great cover, so thanks for exposing me to this new music. No more messages.
3: To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.